A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following is a Podcast One and Reels channel presentation. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. A hysterical young mother appears on the doorstep of a stranger's house, claiming she's been carjacked and her two infant children kidnapped. As police and the community search tirelessly for nine days, authorities begin to question the mother's account of the crime. She would make uh, tearful requests for her children to be returned. Was she really the victim, or is there a darker truth behind her bizarre story? She was like a person that's trying to convince the world that what she said happened, happened. What emerges is a nightmarish tale of abuse. Come sit on my lap. Infidelity. <laughs> and unthinkable murder. When the truth finally came out, it was, it was just devastating. What really happened on that South Carolina lakeshore? What she told me was, no one can find out about what happened here. These were just just babies, really, and not being able to defend themselves or help themselves in any kind of way. And why? She abandoned her maternal instinct for her selfish interest. She was the ultimate monster mother. Meet Susan Smith, just a pretty young mother looking for love and acceptance. Until murder made her famous. The tiny community of Union, South Carolina is turned on its head when national media descends on the town to cover the horrific tragedy that befell three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander Smith. This was something that put Union on the map that probably most citizens from Union would wish they were not on the map for. At first, it was just the local stations covering the story. And then, all of a sudden, the story grew. And the national media was there. I think even international media. At the start, the boy's mother, Susan Smith, claimed a black man carjacked her and kidnapped her children. But her story quickly dissolved as she spent more and more time in the limelight. She would be on Good Morning America Today Show. And if you watch the progressive days, she enjoyed it and she enjoyed it and she enjoyed it till it got a little tougher and they would ask her the harder questions. Some people think that you may have had something to do with this. The truth of what happened to Michael and Alexander forever demonizes Susan Smith. 
you know, we enjoy making people icons. We also enjoy tearing them down. And Susan was the poster girl for that. The bizarre turn of events inspired a dramatic episode of Law and Order and a dark comedic characterization of Susan Smith on South Park. In 1995, the rock band Blind Melon even wrote a song called Car Seat, and it was all about Susan Smith. But the question remains, how did Susan Smith turn from mom to monster? Susan's early years in Union, South Carolina, are marred by several dramatic events. When she is just six years old, her parents, Linda and Harry Ray Vaughn, divorce. Her parents were engaged in a very chaotic marriage. More than once, Ray told Linda that he was going to kill her and then kill himself. And one day, he took action. Oh my God. Ray, you scared the crap out of me. What are you doing? Ray, what are you doing? Put the gun away. Come here. You're scaring the kid. He burst into the house and loudly demanded that he was going to kill himself in front of her mother and her. It is unknown why, but Ray doesn't carry out his threat. However, in January 1978, he takes his own life by shooting himself in the chest with a shotgun. A very traumatic, terrifying event. Susan's mother, Linda, quickly gets remarried to Beverly Russell a successful Republican politician and member of the Christian Coalition. Beverly Russell, Susan Smith's stepfather, was very well known in the community. He was very high up in the Republican Party. He had a business in town. There was no celebration and no big announcement about this wedding. In fact, they didn't even tell their kids about it for a while. Despite the tragic loss of her father and her mother's quick marriage to another man, Susan is an outwardly happy and successful student for most of her school years. She was doing well in school, um, seemed to be pretty happy, uh, typical tween. And then her stepfather started molesting her. Susan, you're such a beautiful girl. But I think you know that. Come sit on my lap. Her stepfather had begun to molest her when she was in her mid-teens, initially fondling above the waist and then below the waist. But it never got to the point of uh, sexual intercourse. After he clocked 218.35 miles an hour in the trials, next in line was Todd Williams, followed by the favorite Jean-Luc Guillaume. Susan eventually reports the inappropriate behavior to her school counselor. At home, her mother allegedly chastises her for making the sexual abuse a public affair. Now they've arrested him. We'll be the talk of the town for sure now. I didn't make it up. He touched me. Mom, he made me touch him. When the molestations uh, became known outside the family... Uh, Her mother was very embarrassed. From the authorities, Beverly Russell simply receives a slap on the wrist. He returns home after a few counseling sessions. Her stepfather lived uh, elsewhere for approximately a month and then returned and started up again molesting her. (laughs) 
On several occasions, Susan tries to escape the clutches of her stepfather by attempting suicide. Her suicide attempts were cries for help. Uh, a test of whether she would be loved or whether she was worthy of being loved. Around this time, Susan gets a job at the local grocery store and begins actively dating one of her co-workers. Come take a break with me. When Susan Smith starts dating, she's clearly not attracted to the right people as a young girl should be. Susan starts dating a co-worker but he's married. And now having some sexual experience, she started to see men in a little bit different way and ended up losing her virginity. It's my understanding that she began sexual relations uh, with other men as well. Susan goes through several tumultuous relationships, but that all changes with David Smith. David, let me introduce you to a few of our cashiers. Girls, I want you to meet David Smith. Hi, it's nice to meet you both. Hello there. David, I'm going to expect big things from you. This is a place where you can really shine. Maybe she was on the rebound. Or maybe they liked each other. Whatever the reason, the two of them started a whirlwind relationship. Susan Smith starts dating David. He seems to be the one. They are about the same age. They hit it off. And it appears that he's the right guy. Do you love me? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and they rather quickly develop into an intimate relationship and uh, shortly thereafter becomes uh, pregnant with her first son. With a baby on the way, David and Susan make things official. When Susan Smith gets pregnant with her first child, David and Susan, they're very happy about it. They realize that, okay, we're going to have a child and we can really embrace parenthood and they're all in. Susan and David marry on March 15, 1991. Later that year, on October 10, 1991, Michael Daniel Smith is born. Susan and David uh, were very good parents. However, there were problems in the marriage. According to David, Susan is unfaithful. Things turn rocky. They start fighting. They have disagreements. And he even claims to find Susan in the arms of another man at a local parking lot. What the hell are you doing? That's my wife. Uh, I think there is some extramarital affairs on both sides. By their third wedding anniversary, Susan and David had separated several times. And now they were both having affairs. But through their on-again, off-again marriage, Susan gets pregnant for a second time with David's child. So the couple attempts to reconcile. Susan and David buy their first house. So it appears that they're excited about raising a family and, you know, being in a new home and really trying to make this work. Home sweet home, baby. Everything's going to be different now, isn't it? 
Yes, sweetie, it's going to be great. During this time after David and Susan had reunited, I think Susan at that time felt that things were going very well for her, that her life had finally stabilized. But Susan's need for love and acceptance will ultimately lead her into the arms of another man. And to keep that man, she will say and do anything, including the unthinkable. After months of cheating allegations on both sides, David and Susan Smith reconcile in 1992 when they find out Susan is pregnant with their second child. During this time after David and Susan had reunited and she had given birth to their second child, they had a house together, they were jointly parenting their children, and they tried to rekindle their marriage. Where have you been? What are you talking about? I've been at work. Oh, really? Hmm? You sure you weren't at Tiffany's house last night? Hmm? Ruin her again! Come on! But they can't make it work. David and Susan split. This time for good. In 1993, Susan gets a new job working for one of the largest companies in Union. It's there she meets 27-year-old Tom Finley. Who is that? Girl, that's Tom Finley. The one I was telling you about. You know, the boss's son. <sighs> I love looking at that boy. He's a total catch. Handsome. Attractive, the son of the owner of a major company in town. It was as if, wow, if you get him, now you've really got you somebody. Susan is infatuated with Tom and begins actively pursuing him. She develops a sexual relationship with the son of the owner of that company. Tom and Susan engage in a casual relationship and go on several dates. Uh, yeah, the but Tom well. begins to see another side to Susan. Are you having a party? Make sure that the... What is she doing? What Tom allegedly doesn't know is that Susan is purportedly carrying on a relationship with her stepfather, Beverly Russell. Hey. During this time, he is still married to Susan's mother, Linda. Susan continues her sexual relationship with her stepfather... I believe, uh, as a way of having a base source of support and love and, uh, and affection. She knew he would always be there for her, uh, even though other men might reject her that she was involved with. Susan, however, only sees a future with Tom Findlay. You're going out with Tom tonight, right? Yeah. He's taking me to that new restaurant. And I think he may propose. Really? I didn't think he was a marrying type. Well, he will be when I'm done with him. <laughs> Besides, I think Tom is my ticket out of here. But Tom is having second thoughts. I don't know, man. I think this is the last date. I just, I can't be with a woman who acts that way, you know? Like what? Someone who makes out with every freaking Tom, Dick, and Harry just because he smiles at her. I just don't know the best way to break it off. Susan Smith brings a lot of baggage to the relationship with Tom Finley. Tom's looking for someone who is on his level. Susan Smith is not it. 
On October 17, 1994, Susan is blindsided by a letter from Tom. This was simply a, a Dear Jane letter uh, that the relationship was over. <laughs> Tom Finley writes Susan Smith a letter, letting her know what he does want and what he doesn't want. And what he does want is a good girl. That is not Susan Smith. And what he does not want is kids. Susan Smith has two kids. The fear of losing Tom leaves Susan unhinged. So she concocts a bizarre plan to win him back. In her mind, she's thinking, wait a minute, this is a life that I'm hoping to have, and you're getting ready to wreck it. So she's thinking, no, this cannot happen. So she goes to his office to confront him. What the hell are you doing here? Will you excuse us, please, and get the door? You look like hell. Tom, you, you just can't. The, the letter, you can't just leave me. Susan, we were never really a thing. For God's sake, you got two kids. You should just go back home to David. I can't. He, he hits me. She's actually in a panic attack with extremely poor judgment. Susan allegedly tells Tom about her past sexual affairs, including her relationship with her stepfather. She also allegedly claims to be sleeping with Tom's father. She tells Tom that she's involved with her stepfather, with his father, with a number of other men. Susan hopes that by sharing this information, Tom will see her as a woman who's desired by many different men. However, it has the opposite effect. Susan, that doesn't even make sense. Are you saying you're screwing my father? You're crazy. Not realizing that... Tom will see her as being a promiscuous, unstable woman rather than this desirable sex object. I love you. Susan, get the hell out of my office. Angry and devastated from being cast aside, Susan is reportedly desperate to win Tom back. On October 25th, 1994, Susan appears at the door of Shirley and Rick McLeod, crying hysterically for help. Please help me. He took me. He took me. He stole my baby. What? He, you have to help me. He's got my kids. He's got my car. Oh, oh God. She's been carjacked, and her two little boys are missing. It's a horrifying story, and immediately the police and David show up. Okay, ma'am, can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Um, I was driving my kids, and I stopped at a red light. Susan tells police she had been stopped at a red light at an intersection when a black man with a gun jumped into her car. She was at a light there in, in Union. Um, she claimed that while she was stopped, she was carjacked by an African-American, that he um, had her drive. 
She said, I was driving down the street, and all of a sudden, this black man just jumps in the car. She must be distraught. That's, of course, what I'm thinking. At some point, he pulls over, tells her to get out. She wants to get the, the children out of the back of the car. He says there's no time for that and leaves her and drives off. The car was just gone. I tried to run. I found the nearest house I could find. Her story is pretty vague. But that's sort of understandable because she'd just been through something horrible. From a law enforcement standpoint, until you prove it wrong, you have to accept it. In other words, there was a manhunt. Local law enforcement, including Howard Wells, the sheriff of Union County, immediately start an intensive investigation. Time is of the essence. You want to act quickly. There's always an urgency in law enforcement in kidnapping circumstances. Police question people from the black community, which heightens existing racial tensions in South Carolina. Are you here alone? Ain't nobody here but me. They did the oddest rendering of who she said had done it. You know, there are a lot of people that fit that description. A lot of people. The African-American community felt like there was this cloud over them. And you just sort of felt like this is downright racist. Obviously, people in the black community felt hurt and scapegoated. I guess police were just doing their jobs by going checking suspects. The news of Susan Smith's missing children spreads rapidly. The entire community rallies around the young mother, combing the area for the boys. There was the greatest outpouring of, of for lack of a better term, volunteerism. People held vigils. People went out and physically searched. There was a lot of people out beating the bushes, riding horses, looking for the kids and stuff like that here and there. Searches of the lakes turn up nothing, so divers stop looking. Meanwhile, media from across the country descend on the small town. Oprah Winfrey, ABC, NBC, CNN, you name it, they were, they were here. And uh, they just kind of transformed this whole downtown into a media haven, so to speak. Susan started doing interviews. I want to say to my babies <laughs> that your mama loves you so much. She would make uh, tearful requests for her children to be returned. And your mom and dad are going to be right here waiting on you when you get home. As the search goes on, no one expects the horrific truth that's been hiding just beneath the surface. Murder Made Me Famous will be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. For nine days, an extensive search for Michael and Alexander Smith is conducted throughout Union, South Carolina and the surrounding areas. The boy's mother, Susan Smith, claims they were kidnapped during a carjacking while stopped at a red light. Out of nowhere, this black guy came up and just opened the door and jumped in the car. And he had a gun, and he had it pointed in my side and told me to drive. Susan repeatedly appears on television to plead for her children's safe return. Many people across the country believed her story. Why would she lie about this? But people in Union had a different idea, and a lot of them thought her story didn't make any sense. Well, as soon as she said that an African-American man, man had taken off with her kids, 
I was a little sensitive thinking, hmm, is that really true in union and knowing the landscape where people live? I just don't think that happened. Her demeanor, it, it was awkward. There were no tears. I mean, you know, you, 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 a person just losing their kids. I mean, babies, mere babies. And there was no tears or anything. And she was like, she was, she was trying to force herself to cry. Through it all, David Smith stands by Susan's side. David, do you believe your wife's story? I believe her 100%. I've said it all along. I think Susan is the last person that would ever hurt Michael and Alex. She's their mother, for heaven's sake. While the media circus was going on around Susan, law enforcement was very carefully investigating her story and seeing whether what she was saying was the truth. Law enforcement had a good reason for doubting her story. Typically, carjackers aren't after kids. They're after the car. Another fact in Susan's story that seems odd is her claim about stopping at a red light. All right. Thanks. Okay, bye. Sheriff Wells, come take a look at this. So the light can only turn red if a car triggers it from the cross street. But Susan said she didn't see any of the cars on the road. The actual light that she claimed to be stopped at was consistently green unless there was a car coming from the side road that would trip that light, that would set it off to turn red. So arguably, uh, she could not have been alone at the intersection and the light be red. As the investigation continues, police begin to suspect that Susan knows more than she's letting on. Time wore on. There were, were fewer and fewer leads on an actual potential carjacker, and more and more evidence was pointing towards Susan as the perpetrator. Law enforcement personnel conduct polygraph tests on both David and Susan. Do you know where your children are? No. Did you have anything to do with the abduction of your children? No. Susan was consistently inconclusive the closer you got to the issues on Michael and Alex's safety. With the evidence increasingly pointing towards Susan Smith, Sheriff Howard Wells makes a personal attempt to appeal to Susan. Susan, you got a minute? Just want to run a few things by you. Sheriff, we're beat. Can't this wait till tomorrow? It'll only take a minute. It's okay. David, I'll see you at home. Sheriff Wells, one, was from Union County. I think further, he had a relationship with, with that family and so knew her for a number of years. So I think there was a, a trust factor there. He met alone with her. He acted toward her in a very fatherly sort of way. Susan, I need you to tell me what happened. Sheriff, I've been through it so many times. You know everything. I'm so tired. I know, sweetie. We're going to find those babies of yours, whether you help us or not. I know you're hiding something, Susan. Will you pray with me? What really happened, Susan? I did it. <laughs> It was me. 
Susan told the sheriff step by step everything that she'd done. But even he wasn't prepared for the horror of her crime. On October 25, 1994, distraught from a breakup with her boyfriend, Tom Findlay, Susan Smith straps her sons into their car seats and begins driving. She tells authorities that as she heads toward John D. Long Lake, she intends to kill herself and her children. Susan is driving around rural Union County with Alex and Michael in the back seat, and she's in a panic state and starts thinking about suicide. At one point, she stops on a bridge over a small river in the county and thinks about jumping in, but decides not to because the boys would be abandoned at that point. And so she decides that in order to protect her children, they must die with her. She drove onto the ramp, put the car in drive, and released the brake. She tried it twice, and both times she stopped it before it hit the water. But on the third try, she decided to get out of the car. And the children go into the lake. Susan's car plunges into the water with Michael and Alex still strapped inside. It drifts out into the lake and slowly sinks. Somewhere between the time when the car sank and when she knocked on the neighbor's door, she'd come up with a story that she'd been carjacked by a black man. I believe that Susan claimed that a black man had abducted her children uh, because it was a convenient racial stereotype, not uncommon in southern states. After nine days, the police have their confession. And Sheriff Wells charges Susan Smith for the drowning deaths of her two children. A press conference is held shortly after. We were standing right on the streets at the, by the jail entrance, and the tension was high, real high. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children. Susan Smith? has been charged. He said it so slowly, definitively. And there was like this, like, what? I can't believe this. I think when the truth came out about what actually happened, not only the public, but I think also the media felt betrayed. I'd like to get my hands on her. She don't know what she's done to this town. Here was this woman who appeared to be so sincerely depressed and uh, overwrought over the loss of her children, and it was all a lie. 
The community is stunned that the same sweet 23-year-old mother who tearfully pleaded for her children's safe return would be capable of killing them. Authorities rush to search the watery depths for Susan Smith's two young sons. But incredibly, they still can't find proof of her horrific story. The nation is stunned when Susan Smith confesses to killing her two young sons. Everyone, including their father, wants to know why and where are their bodies. Remember, the local recovery team had searched the waterways and the lakes and had found nothing in Union County. Susan gives the dive team the exact distance the car floated before it sank. The ramp went down at a, a fairly abrupt, straight angle. So if you went to look and I said, a car rolled in, what do you think it is? You would point right out straight the end of the, the ramp. What actually happened because of flotation characteristics of the car, the car actually went and floated for some five to six minutes. Divers discover the car about 120 feet away from the shoreline with the tiny bodies of Michael and Alex hanging upside down. We were stopped at the entrance to the lake, and I was standing there with my camera, and the car came up out of the drive from the, from the lake, and it turned right in front of me, and, you know, water was still dripping out of it. The feeling that went through me is saying that they, those kids were in that car. So the car is, is attached to a wrecker, and it's, it's winched out and pulled out, and, and Michael and Alex are strapped into the car seats in the back of the car. Their bodies had obviously been submerged in a number of days. Michael and Alex were still strapped in their car seats, and the condition of the bodies was, it, it was just it was really bad. I saw grown men that I'd worked with for years with the state law enforcement division openly weeping. They also find the breakup letter from Tom Findlay in which he tells Susan he doesn't want children. This letter provides motive. Susan's defense team claims that she was not in her right mind when she committed the murder of her children. But prosecutor Tommy Pope doesn't buy any of that. Susan made a choice. She made a horrible, horrible choice that she would put herself, her happiness, above all else, above those children. Susan Smith abandoned her maternal instinct for her selfish interest. The question was whether or not to seek the death penalty. For me, the choice was clear. Susan Smith's trial begins in July of 1995. For the small town, the trial is highly disruptive and heartbreakingly sad. When Susan Smith's trial rolled around, it was traumatic for the town. It was like reliving that night of when she killed her kids all over again. And so it's wall-to-wall -wall media again. Cameras are prohibited by the judge inside the courtroom during the trial. The judge decided that having a camera in the courtroom would turn this whole thing into a circus. This was a case about two dead children, and it needed to be treated with sensitivity and respect. During the trial, the defense and the prosecution paint Susan very differently. On the one hand, one theory prompted by the state was that she was a cold-blooded killer. 
and had gotten rid of her children so she would be appealing to Tom again because Tom didn't want children. To bolster their argument, the prosecution introduces as evidence the breakup letter from Tom Finley. I believe that Susan Smith felt that if she did not have those children, that there was an opportunity for her with Tom Finley, the the boyfriend she wanted, that if she gave away the children, then somehow she was a lesser person, she was a bad mother. But if the carjacker took her children, she was a victim. On the other side was the defense saying that Susan was this terribly emotionally vulnerable, unstable woman with extremely poor judgment who, on impulse, jumped out of the car, which led to the death of her children. She claimed during the trial that it was a botched suicide attempt, but she wasn't wet when she went to the house. She wasn't dirty as if she'd rolled from the car as it sped down the ramp. And truthfully, if she was in the car as she had told it, then the easiest way to stop the car is just to put on the brake, either the emergency brake or the foot brake. So I don't dispute that she had to be in a tremendously horrible state of mind to do what she did, but I do not believe that Susan was looking to commit suicide The evidence doesn't add up to that. The defense tries to garner as much sympathy for Susan as they can by sharing her troubled past as a possible reason for her actions. I think when some of the stories came out about Susan Smith's childhood, I really do think people felt sorry for her. Her father committing suicide, then the stepfather who molested her. I think there was sort of this empathy, in a way, for her. Susan's psychiatrist diagnoses her with borderline personality disorder, attributed to a childhood of tragedy and sexual abuse. Borderline personality disorder is a severe disabling condition where out of an intense fear of abandonment, the individual experiences serious disruptions in their mood in their emotional expression, and as well as their uh, inability to control their impulses. Prosecutor Tommy Pope shows the jury an emotional video that demonstrates how long it took for the car to fill with water as it sank to the bottom of the murky lake. As you watched it, you felt like the air was being sucked from the courtroom. And, and knowing what Michael and Alex had faced and as the water came, you would almost feel like you were smothering yourself. The car floated for approximately six minutes. The car turns and rolls and then points down and ultimately goes down. So what the, that told me was how much time she had if she had chosen to react and perhaps change her mind and try to help the boys. She stood on that ramp and watched it slowly go underwater. It's twisted, and at some point, David must have realized that. David Smith, the boy's father, is the next to testify. I wish that the world could have seen David Smith testify. If the world had been able to see what David Smith felt, they would have known why I sought the death penalty. 
When David found out the truth, he was devastated. But he was also extremely angry at his wife because she had killed his two sons. David tells the jury that he wants Susan to die for killing their children. David Smith said he wanted Susan Smith to get the death penalty. That was really shocking. But after all, she had killed his two kids. After two and a half hours of deliberations, the jury finds Susan guilty of killing her two children. But the question still remains, will Susan receive the ultimate penalty for the ghastly murder of her two young boys? In July of 1995, a jury finds Susan Smith guilty of two counts of murder for the drowning deaths of her children. It was an epic trial, and people were just stunned to find out that Susan Smith had done this. This is a hometown girl. Susan is clearly guilty, but the question facing the jury is, does she deserve to die? For me, the choice was clear, and, and my, my logic in that was if the carjacker had committed this crime, if there really had been an African-American carjacker, there would have been a tremendous outcry that justice would require the death penalty. If David Smith, the father, had committed the crime, I think there would be a similar outcry. I felt personally that we can't have a different standard for a middle-class white female mother that we have for the carjacker for the same horror, for the same crime. When the jurors left to deliberate, there wasn't a dry eye in the courtroom. And ultimately, the jury decided not to sentence her to death, but to sentence her to a life in prison. Some of the jurors said they gave her life as they thought that would be a greater punishment that she would have to sit and reflect on, on what she did. The jury's decision is a controversial one. I didn't think that Susan deserved to die. She let six minutes for them to drown in a car, and for that you think a mother deserves to kill her children and she shouldn't get the death penalty? A public funeral is held for Michael and Alex, who are buried together in the same casket. It was the greatest, most sincere outpouring of grief I think I have seen in, in, in my career. Susan's mother, Linda, is empathetic to her daughter's state of mind. To this day, Linda believes that Susan had somehow lost touch with reality and that that caused her to kill her two boys. Uh, unfortunately, I think Susan continues to focus on Susan. The remorse she has is for how her life has been affected. And I think that's evidenced by the, the conduct she's had uh, in prison. In 2000, while serving her sentence in prison, Susan is treated for a sexually transmitted disease. Susan does not appear to be uh, sitting, dwelling on Michael and Alex while she's in prison. That's when officials discover that she has been having sex with two guards. Hey, what are y'all doing? Both guards are fired. But I, I think that her involvement with uh, guards is just a perpetuation of this uh, borderline personality disorder, which sexualizes relationships 
as a way of giving her satisfaction and some sense of uh, love and support. David Smith later remarries and has two more children, a daughter and a son. In an interview with People magazine, David shares how he became distraught while visiting his son's gravesite on the 10th anniversary of their deaths. David laid down on his son's graves and put a gun in his mouth. He prayed to God that he would have the courage to pull the trigger, but he didn't. David worked uh, to try to get his life back on track. I think the biggest difficulty he faced was to try to get out of the public eye and to try to, to lead a normal life. The deaths of Michael and Alex will forever shock a nation which struggles to understand how a mother could do such a thing to her children. Nobody knows exactly what made Susan Smith do it. Nobody knows if it was a quick psychotic break, if it was something that was going on for a while. Is Susan Smith a monster or a victim? Well, uh, in my opinion, she's a bit of both. And many people get uh, abused and sexually victimized as children and adolescence and do not go on to commit murder, especially murder of their children. That concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash truecrime.